IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the fall of Jan Winner and a surprise new national album. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I wonder if he knows that Bob Cuccioni Jr. is still at Spin Magazine. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I'm like hesitant to say anything negative about Spin right now because uh, just two days ago, their most recent check cleared for me. And I can't say that about every single publication I write for. So whether it's Bob Cuccioni yeah. Jr. or Bob Cuccioni Jr. Jr. signing checks, I don't give a shit. But I do give a shit because this is fucking hilarious. Like, I love that we're having like real deal Bob Guccione Jr. talk without having to like force feed uh, get in the ring. Yeah, it's uh, we're going to get to Bob Guccione Jr. here in a minute because he he plays into this Jan Winter story in a surprising way. It was like the Jan Winter story. It was like running out of juice <laughs> because for those who don't know, Jan Winter, uh, former publisher of Rolling Stone, gave an interview to the New York Times. I think it was last Friday, the day our previous episode came out uh and it's about this upcoming book of interviews he's putting out called the masters which is a hilarious title yeah, boy. in light of this interview <laughs> uh but it's a collection of interviews with seven uh classic rockers uh i'm gonna try to recite this from memory i think it's bob dylan bono uh pete townsend uh jagger jerry garcia john lennon Am I missing somebody? Uh, did you, you said Bono, right? I said Bono, yeah. yeah. It, it's like literal. Uh, I see my copy on the shelf right now, and if I were to get up and get it, I'd fact check you. But now I'm just like, <laughs> I have the promo copy, and man, John Wenner really tanked the resale value of this thing. Or maybe he didn't. Are the, Is this book out yet? Well, okay. No, it's not out. I don't think it's out yet. I think it's out uh, next week. Okay. And um, yeah... It, I want to talk about the the impact on book sales here in a second, but just to wrap up the the setup here, Jan Winter he gives an interview to the New York Times about this book, and it is like the worst book promo interview that I can remember. It is Jan Winter pouring gasoline on himself and begging uh, David Marchez, who did the interview, begging him to light a match, yeah. uh, and, and and Marchez not wanting to light a match. Like, he's like, hey, do you sure you want to do this, Jan? And Jan's like, yes, I want to be set on fire. And so he was. There's so many things that were bad about this interview. I mean, the headline of the of the thing that, and this is the thing that really sunk him, was there's a part of the interview where David Marchez asks Jan Winner, you did this book called The Masters. You got seven people in here. They're all white guys. By the way, I forgot to mention Bruce Springsteen. Ah, That's the one we... I forgot. I can't, Jeez. I forgot the boss. How could I forget the boss? You have this book called The Master, seven people interviewed, they're all white guys. Why is that? Why aren't there any women or black musicians or, you know, anyone who's not a white guy? And Jan Winner, this is what he could have said. <laughs> any, literally anything except what he did say. Well, what he could have said is, well, look, David, I'm a 77-year-old man. Uh, my favorite music was released in the 60s and 70s. These are my favorite artists. They, they're also my friends. Uh, and I just wanted to do a book about people I care about. He could have said that. It wouldn't have nullified the criticism that the book is narrowly focused on one type of person, but it would have at least grounded the book 
in Jan Winner's personal preference. And you can't really, at the end of the day, rebuke that. It's like, it's my book, my perspective, and people can do their own books and have their own people in there if they want. He didn't say that. What he said was that there were no women that were articulate enough. I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but he basically said there were no women articulate enough to be in the book and that there were no black musicians articulate on the same level as these white musicians for him to include in the book. Um, That didn't go over very well. (laughs) Uh, Firestorm of controversy. He actually gets booted from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, after essentially being booted from Rolling Stone for the reasons in this interview. Like, he is this out-of-touch boomer guy, and the forces, uh, including, uh, I think one of his sons, actually, is in charge of Rolling Stone now. They realize, like, we can't just put Bono on the cover every month. We have to get a little younger, we have to get more diverse, and that's what Rolling Stone has been trying to do. Every other month is fine. Not every month, (laughs) You know? But, uh, and there were other terrible things in this interview. Like... (laughs) Jan Winner admitting that he shows interview transcripts to his subjects before they're published and allows them to make changes. Like going back to like 1970 with John Lennon in that very famous interview. So, I mean, he's done this for like 50 years, which is like journalistic malpractice. No one really talked about that because the <laughs> sexism and racism parts were way worse. Um, the thing about this interview is that like the content itself wasn't, shocking if you know anything about Jan Winner. Because uh, I think if you if you read the magazine or you know about Jan Winner, you would have assumed that he thought this way. It's the fact that he said it out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it is like the music equivalent of like interviewing Richard Nixon at the end of his life and being like, hey, Richard, what about Watergate? And, Water- <laughs> and, and Nixon's like, oh yeah, I totally did Watergate. Totally did it. <laughs> Everything bad about me that you assume is true. And I admit it unapologetically. Like that is what this interview was. It's it's so crazy. Yeah, I I, I mean you're you're right in that the 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 interviewer gives him so many opportunities to walk it back or at least come up with some degree of plausible deniability. Because yeah, I mean like people are like, oh, if you can't get like an inter- good interview out of like Joni Mitchell, that's a skill issue. It's like, well, I mean maybe he's not as good of friends with like Joni Mitchell as he is with like. Bono or Bruce Springsteen, like these are his drinking buddies. And you know what? Like, what do you expect out of like Jan Wenner at this point? Like, I think that there are so many ways where he could just like kind of phone it in. And I mean, on some, like some purely objective context-free level, you got to appreciate someone who's like that old and just doesn't give a shit anymore about like their press. Like, like, this somehow like ended up way worse than the worst conspiracy shit you would come up with like Jan Wenner. It's like he 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 did he really did the eugenics phrenology type shit. Uh, has he apologized well, he, yet? He apologized. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you would think Jan Wenner, who whatever else you want to say about him, he has been very successful in media. You know, he's built magazines, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars. You would expect him to be a little more media savvy than he was in this interview. But you're right. I think that there's a sense when you read this interview that he's just like, I don't want to put up a facade anymore. Yeah. I don't want to go through the paces. There's actually a part in the interview where he says, you know, I could have put a woman in to, you know, deflect criticism, you know, for, for PR purposes, but I didn't want to do that. 
You know, so like he's aware that this would be an issue, certainly in the media, that people would bring up. And he just didn't care. And he didn't even give the more sort of politically astute <laughs> answer to it. He just was straight up, I don't think women or black musicians are as interesting as these white guys. <laughs> That's He just said that straight up. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I was thinking, though, about the impact on book sales for this. I do wonder, like the audience that's going to buy this book, it's mostly, I'm guessing, classic rock loving baby boomers. I, or or like low-key racists. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, like I would be interested in this book. I like the musicians who are in the book. Yeah. I've read some of these interviews. Like, you know, these are uh, these interviews have already run in Rolling Stone. Uh, the John Lennon interview from 1970 is a classic interview. Um, oh, he's, he's not. Know, he's not. Con- he's not speaking to some of these people from beyond the grave. That's no, that's no. what I assume from the uh, book. I, I, this is much more boring. <laughs> that would have been a that would have been an incredible scoop. I think the only new interview there's a new interview with Bruce Springsteen, um, who I, I love. Bruce. I don't know what he's going to say at this point. <laughs> that would be interesting. But at anyway, um, you know. The people who are going to buy this book. Do you think they're going to care about this or even know about it? Um, I have my doubts about that. I think if you are still a person who thinks Jan Winter is cool, you know, you probably either agree with him on this or you think that he's being railroaded by the media. Yeah. I really think that the people, I mean, I do think that this permanently tarnishes his reputation i you know like when they write the obituary about jan winter they're going to bring up this interview yeah and they're going to say you know for all his accomplishments he also was a gatekeeper that uh kept out non-white guys in the canon you know that's going to get brought up in this interview it's, it's damning it's you know again any assumption you had about this guy or anything you've observed about him he just confirmed it it, it was way worse though it, it was somehow like way worse like than I could possibly imagine. And that's like, that's like the amazing thing about it. You know, it's like, this is straight up like Logan Roy type shit or like Rupert <laughs> Murdoch, which by the way, shout to Rupert Murdoch stepping down. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that <laughs> it also, he got like kicked off the rock and roll hall of fame committee that he started, uh, which right. is like Donald Sterling or like Daniel Snyder being like forced to sell their teams. But the, I think the the thing that like kind of bums me out like on a completely trivial level about this interview is that like 90 like there was like a 99% chance the thing that we would be talking about on this podcast had he not like got into some like weird race theory stuff is that he's getting shit 22 years later for the goddess in the doorway review. Yes. Like, have you ever gotten like shit on for this long, this hard for a positive review? I, I don't know if there's any precedent for this in, in well, music criticism. And honestly, you know, when I read that interview, you know, I noticed all the horrible stuff in there. But the thing that made me laugh the most was that David Marchez brings up the five star God, it's in the doorway review of the Mick Jagger record and makes... Jan Winter apologized for it essentially. Like Jan Winter's like, I'm sorry, man. I was into the music. Maybe I was a little uh, indulgent, but I'm privileged. You know, so what? Um, I just love that. Among all the other things in this interview, you know, this is like the sixth or seventh 
paragraph if you're writing the story about this uh, about this controversy. But yeah, he's still getting shit on for the goddess in the doorway review. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any in your history like that where it's like people bring it up, like how excited you were about like some record and. Well, the one I, I joked about this on Twitter that when I'm 77, I hope that someone brings up my beach slang oh, column God. from 2015. <laughs> I think yeah, I, I think yeah. that I think that would be the thing. Both of us, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. That if, if you're gonna if you're gonna prosecute me on a on a music critic crime, it would be the beach slang column <laughs> from 2015. Um, yeah. We got to bring up Bob Guccione Jr. We got to bring up here. Bob Guccione. We got to get on our Axl Rose shit right now. And, and and God bless Bob Guccione Jr. Because again, this story it had run out of gas by the middle of this week, uh, to the point where I was like, "Can we still talk about this on the show?" I mean, I, I felt I felt like we were probably going to do it, but it felt like a little like old news, like maybe we missed our window. And then Bob Guccione Jr. comes to the door like the Kool Aid Man with a think piece. Uh, I think it's called "In Defense of Jan Winner." Yes, I think it's the headline. Yeah. Um, and it's a wild think piece. Uh, you feel like Bob has had this in his head for a while. All these thoughts. And he just was looking for an excuse to express them. And Jan Winner, uh, the fall of Jan Winner was a good excuse. He starts off the piece and he's saying, look, Jan Winner is wrong about what he said about women and black musicians. But what about freedom of speech? Are we uh, taking away Jan Winner's freedom of speech by thinking that what he said was stupid? And of course, this is like the dumbest argument in the world that when you say something on a huge platform like the New York Times Mm -hmm. and the public, uh, you know, lashes out at you over that 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 is somehow violating your your freedom of speech that that freedom of speech means that you can say whatever you want and no one can say anything back to you right just just the dumbest (laughs) old guy on facebook argument in the world i even feel stupid refuting it because it's (laughs) such a dumb argument that the things that you say to refute it just seem so obvious but then he goes from there and he goes into like a like a rosian murphy uh, tangent. I'm kind of shocked that like Bob Guccione Jr. knows who Roshan Murphy is. He goes into that, and then he goes to like the PMRC hearings in the mid '80s, <laughs> and like you're and like I didn't read this piece. I had to stop because yeah. I was like, this is too much. But I was scrolling down, and I was like, oh, of course, there's a photo of Frank Zappa in this piece. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was like That's the a cherry little more on the his yeah, where's the Frank yeah. Zappa interview in the Masters? I, I'm sure this guy, if he stayed alive, he would have had some very interesting, similarly interesting views on race and sex. <laughs> but I, you know, I, and again, I didn't read the whole thing because I, I, it was it was too much for me. But I know the, there is a sentence where it begins with "As Bill Maher said." Oh, cool. <laughs> and and when you're starting a sentence with "As Bill Maher said," uh you're not in a good place. You might just want to press delete on that sentence and rethink what you're doing. Um, I want I want Jan Wenner to like uh, to do the Donald Trump thing. It's like I did everything right and they indicted me. I want to hear like that sort of thing, you know, like for free speech, like you know, because that a vile like a free if it was really about free speech, like Jan Wenner would be in like jail right now. But he's just like you know <laughs> suffering the consequences of his dumbass actions, which well. Jan Winter is Trump-like 
in the sense that he appears to have no proclivity for introspection. Like he doesn't look at his own life or his career with any sort of regret or critical eye. Uh, there's a part in that New York Times interview like where Marchez is like, I interviewed Pete Townsend myself recently, and Pete Townsend was talking about you know, where the boomers fell short, like where they failed in their generation. And, and he like, Jan, what do you think? <laughs> and Jan is just like, I can't think of anything that we didn't do well. <laughs> you know, I, I can't think of any mistakes that we've made. And that applies to, his, to himself. I, there's just something in the boomer, like the aging rich boomer, mm-hmm. that um, I don't want to use the word sociopath like too loosely <laughs> here, but, you know, I don't understand how you can live that long and not have any regret mm. or not have any sort of self-awareness about your shortcomings. I, it, it's so alien to me that, that kind of thought process. Uh, but I guess in a way that is also the thing that enabled him to be a success yeah. that he is just supremely confident, you know, no self-doubt at all. Um, but yeah, in the end, it, it, it will get you eventually. If you are not self-aware, you're not introspective at all. I think you end up in a situation like this in an interview where you're so arrogant, you don't even know that what you're saying is wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> you can't be wrong because you think you're always right about everything. Yeah, I, you think your opinion is fact. I think the main similarity between, if we have to make a parallel between Donald Trump and Jan Wenner, is that both of them are like... 77-year-old dudes who, like, love nothing more than bitchy gossip. That's the stuff they live for. That's, like, the only yeah. thing that keeps them going right now. And that's the only time you see them light up. It's, like, when they get to bitch about, like, other rich-ass boomers. It's it's a shame. But, um, look, he, I'm sure Jan Wenner's suffering enough by, like, watching Rolling Stone, like, become more or less like a Taylor Swift fanzine. So... Well, that's something I wanted to bring up too. Just looking at this more broadly, because you know we've got Jan Winner, you got Bob Guccione Jr., who was the founder of Spin, and I didn't know he was still there. I think he was gone for a while, then came back. <laughs> I wonder um, if uh, the actual Spin people, like the people running it right now, know that he's like this guy. Like, got somehow someone taught him like how to do CMS, and he just published this thing, and the editors could just do nothing about it. Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet that, that the editors there were not happy about this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I would guarantee you that they would not have run this if it was written by anybody else. But anyway, you got you got Jan Winter, you got Bob Cuccioni Jr. I'm going to bring Ryan Schreiber into this too. Uh, conversa- he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Ryan didn't say anything this week. But <laughs> just thinking about the auteur generation of music magazines and publications. You know, this idea that you've got a magazine or a website that is a reflection of, like, a single person's sensibility and taste. You know, that's how Rolling Stone started. That's how Pitchfork started. I think Spin, you could say that about Guccione Jr. And how, with all of these places, at some point they get absorbed into, like, a corporate structure Mm -hmm. and the auteur gets displaced and replaced by a, a plurality of voices. And how, in a lot of ways, that's an improvement because it ends up expanding the reach of the publication. It gives it a more diverse set of voices. You you end up covering a wider range of things. But uh, I don't know. There's something about that auteur era Mm -hmm. that for all of the many, 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 many faults of someone like Jan Winner, 
you knew what Rolling Stone was when he ran it. You knew what was going to be on the year-end list. You knew Mick Jagger's solo albums are going to get five stars. You knew U2. Any album they put out is probably going to be number one at the end of the year. You knew a new R.E.M. album would be their best since Automatic for the People, you know? <laughs> and 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 we could say these opinions are wrong or, you know, that it's outmoded, but it did have a personality that I don't know if any publication has now, you know, because it is run by, it isn't that auteur model. It is like the plurality of voices. It's the committee thing. And again, I think that the committee thing in terms of the actual product is oftentimes an improvement, but I just wonder, is there ever going to be like a magazine or a website as powerful as Rolling Stone was at its peak or Pitchfork was at its peak? That is also the reflection of like a single person. You know, it, 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 that just Fintano. seems like. I mean, I guess. Well, yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> that is the modern equivalent of that, and I think uh, again for all the of the criticisms you could make of like the auteur driven publication, it does. I think forge a more personal connection with the people who read it because you feel like okay, this is. I know what this is, you know. And when you don't have that, it ends up. You end up with a lot of publications that seem like they're alike and are covering the same kinds of things. And again, like I'm not saying, oh, put Jan Winter back in, because yeah. obviously I think he did a lot of damage <laughs> with his, uh, with uh, you know, this ideology that he had. You know that he wasn't covering certain artists because of some weird bias in his heart. You know that he's now expressed. That's obviously a bad thing, but. Again, that auteur-driven sensibility is something that is interesting to me. And I just wonder if that is never going to happen again. Yeah. Like at a magazine or website. Well, maybe, you know, maybe if uh, someone's willing to take $60,000 to be the auteur-leading paper magazine, uh, you know, maybe there, maybe there's a uh, lane for that. But yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty grim. I mean, maybe it's just like the auteur is not going to be like some you know, like white guy from uh, the Midwest or something like that. I'm right. sure it could be, I'm sure it could happen, but like, you know, when we look at like the economy and just the music industry in general, uh, you know, I, I don't even know what that would look like. Yeah. I don't know if that's something I do think that when you have a single voice that ends up being more interesting than a committee of voices, because again, like with, with someone like Jan Winner, you know, yeah, he had like a lot of stuff like dumb things he did at Rolling Stone, yeah. but it was also kind of more fun to talk about Rolling Stone then. Yeah. You know, like you, you could like make jokes about Rolling Stone doing certain things. And, and you just knew like Jan Winter for all his success, he still cared enough <laughs> to like, you know, change the review yeah. of a Mick Jagger solo record that no one gives a shit about, yeah. you know, like, like the five star review that was going to do nothing to got us in the doorway like that, <laughs> but he cared enough or he, he wanted to impress his friend Mick Jagger when they're yachting together. That's another thing. That New York Times story. <laughs> Great shit. Yeah. We didn't even talk about there was so much in that interview. That photo of Jan Winner and Mick Jagger on the yacht <laughs> together. It's yeah. like, oh my God. That's that, that, that's that indie cast lifestyle. That's like us with like, I don't know, the the keyboardist from Gang of Youth or whatever. Oh my God. <laughs> Just beautiful. Yeah. Um man, we could talk about this forever, but we should transition here uh to talking about the new national album that came out. I guess that was on Sunday, Sunday at midnight. Yeah, something like that. It was either it was Monday, Monday night or it was it was mo- it was either like technically Sunday night or Monday morning. I think. 
It was Monday. At, it was Sunday at midnight. Got it. Although, is that Monday? Yeah, I guess that's technically Monday. It's like the end of Sunday, the beginning of Monday. We'll say it that way. Um, new national album. It's called Laugh Track. And this is the second national album of 2023. If you remember, they put out an album called First Two Pages of Frankenstein uh, back in the spring. Uh, this album... I think we can say is like essentially from the same sessions. I think maybe they did some stuff after stand uh, from uh, uh, two, first two pages of Frankenstein, but it's certainly they're they're very similar records. I think in a lot of ways. I there has been a discussion that I've seen that like laugh track is a little looser, maybe a little more rocking. I think that's due mostly to the appearance of the last song, which is called Smoke Detector. It's the seven minute epic that they. Uh, I think they recorded it at a sound check. Mm-hmm. It's very loose. Easily the most rocking song they've put out uh, in the last several years. Um, but for the most part, Laugh Track is similar to the first two pages of Frankenstein in the sense that there are a lot of slow ballads. There are a lot of guest stars, famous guest stars. Taylor Swift is not on this record like she was on first two pages of Frankenstein, but you have Phoebe Bridgers on here again. Uh, Bonnie Vare is on this record. Roseanne Cash is on a song, actually one of the better songs on the record uh, called Crumble. Uh, That's probably the most surprising guest star appearance on the record. Um, You haven't seen this yet, but I have a column running the day that this episode posts on Friday where I came up with what I think is like a really good national album out of these two albums. I I compiled a 12-track 60-minute record that essentially takes the most like upbeat songs and packages them together and comes up with a record that I think is a lot more satisfying than these two albums are on their own. I think both of these albums are pretty uneven. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to get your take on this because like, we're both national fans going back many years. I think I've been more interested in their recent work than you have been, although... You know, even I, I feel like these two records and I Am Easy to Find, which came out in 2019, the weakness of these albums is that for whatever reason, The National have not been good at self-editing lately. I think I Am Easy to Find has like 18 or 19 songs on it. Very long record. These two albums, you know, came out this year. I think there's like 24 tracks or so between them. Way more songs that I think warranted being released. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of songs that sound the same, I think. And I really believe, like, especially with these two albums, it's a mountain of material. I think that there was a good album to be made from this mountain of material, but they, they just kind of did this data dump mm. with all of these songs. And uh, I don't know. I What is the state of the national at this point, do you think? Uh, you know, the, when, when I heard the first song... Um, Smoke Detector was recorded at Soundcheck. I think the obvious comparison of like at least what I was hoping for was, you know, their version of New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which was like REM's not sort of like the, the, the closest thing they got to a data dump. And it kind of did everything that they had done, you know, previously, but got away from, you know, like Monster and uh, Automatic for the People having very, very um, coherent sounds. And I mean, like, I, I'm kind of surprised that you're able to get, like, 60 minutes. Like, I think there could be a good album to be made from these two. It certainly wouldn't be 60 minutes long, in my opinion, because, um, yeah, they, it's just, like, okay, so f- follow me with this one. Like, I know that, like, the guest stars, like, kind of dissipate the impact of the National, but, like, I almost feel like 
they're so locked into Matt Berninger's whole thing that they can't really reinvent themselves. And I don't know. I would hear like a, I would be interested to hear like a national without the national, like the Garfield without Garfield comic strips, because man, at this pace, like the national is like one of my favorite bands from back in the day. But now like these new albums hold about as much, they feel like listening to like a latter day Interpol album or something like that, which, you know, like derogatory. Um, I I just can't (laughs) find myself like being excited about, what they're doing even in the same way that like when Wilco kind of does Wilco at least there's like this level of craftsmanship it just seems to me like Matt Berninger is just incapable right now of like writing about anything else than like feeling weird at parties and like feeling weird in his own mind and um yeah I I I I'm like really wondering what it would take for the national to you know, make me excited about their music. And everyone's like, oh, they need to make a rockin' album. But I feel like even then, it would if he's not screaming and they don't have uh, Brian Devendorf cranked up way higher than every other instrument, I'm not going to feel it. So just to correct myself quickly, uh, I'm Easy to Find has 16 songs on it, and there's 23 songs between these two albums out this year. So just want to make sure that the national heads don't count my slight <laughs> errors with the song count from before. Um I gotta send you my my playlist of okay. the uh, of the album I made from the two albums from this year. I called it Frankenstein Laughs. That's a good album title. I, I I think so too. Twelve songs that I think speak to what you were just saying. That they are the songs where it sounds like them playing live in a studio. It sounds like Brian Devendorf is actually playing drums and it's not a drum machine. It sounds like uh, Berninger. Yeah, he's singing about feeling weird at parties but i think he's also dropping some funny lines in there and i don't mind him having the same subject matter like to me i'm not really looking for him like what is he gonna write about like do you want to write write about politics or something like i don't don't know like what his new thematic uh territory would be i I, to me the weakness of these uh latter-day national albums is that it gets away from their chemistry as a band which when you see them live, I think everyone agrees, even if you don't like the recent material, that they are still a great live band. And I think their best albums showcase that chemistry that they have. And they've just gotten into this rut. And I agree with you, like the the uh, the uh, you know Aaron Desner, like what he's been doing with um, Taylor Swift, just him as a producer. There is an element of these albums that sound a little bit like the Taylor Swift records that he worked on. And, you know, those records are fine, but this is a band. You know, this isn't a solo artist. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have, like, a lot of piano ballads that work really, like, the same vibe over and over again, I just feel like someone needs to say, look, we only need about two or three of these songs on an album. We don't need, like, four or five per record. And it's just been overkill, I think, with that. And look, I am in the camp where I want them to make a more rocking record. But I would be satisfied with a record that was mellower, but was just them. The five people, you know, bring in Padma, bring in, you know, some of the old guest musicians to back them up. But like not having these huge features all the time. I mean, the Taylor Swift song and first two pages of Frankenstein, like that just... It like took me out of the record. Like she's too big of a star 
to be on a national yeah. record. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's like, I'm trying to think of an analogy well, where, for that. Like, what about I'm, like Phoebe or like Bon Iver? Are they too big for the well, national now? Well, well, Phoebe's a different thing. Phoebe right. Bridgers, who again is an artist I like, but it is, she is like an ingredient now that has just been way overused. You know, it's like mm-hmm. putting avocado on everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I love the por- avocado. The pork belly, uh, Phoebe Bridgers, PB, too much pork belly, too much Phoebe Bridgers. That's that's what yeah, we're too- seeing in the in the or like truffle head. fries. Yeah. You're having truffle oh, fries God. everywhere. It's like <laughs> it's like you know they're fine, but you know it's too much. And like there's just too much Phoebe Bridgers in general. I think she's got to take a year off. She needs to like you know Phoebe less here a little bit. I think. <laughs> That's a different. Uh, that's a subject maybe for a different day. But I just feel like she needs to go away so we can miss her for a while. She just is like omnipresent and has been for like the last several years. But uh, I don't know. The record that I made is going to be the record that I listen to from this era, and I think it's actually a really good record. I'm tempted to put it on my year end list. <laughs> I'm going to be that. I'm going to be that obnoxious about this because. I think the National are still writing good songs. It's just like they're not self-editing enough. Yeah. It's... And they're putting too much out. And I think like I Am Easy to Find has some great songs on it. But you could cut about a quarter. You could at least cut a quarter out of that album. It, it'd get it down to 12 songs. And it would have been a much better record, I think. Yeah, I think it's. It's funny with the national because like Matt's always like, yeah, I had really bad writer's block for four years, and uh, you know, but somehow I came up with sixteen songs. It's like me. It's like when I write a review and I'm like, fuck, how am I gonna hit this six hundred word count? And then like the night before the deadline, it's all of a sudden like twelve hundred, and it's not not that it's good. It's just that it's like, yep, here it is. You fucking deal with it. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to our mailbag segment here, and it's about time we did the mailbag. We haven't done mailbag here uh, for the past few weeks, and I feel like we haven't had a ton of subject matter to talk about, but for whatever reason, we always run out of time, mm-hmm. and we can't do mailbag. So we're somehow stretching what we're talking about to get out the mailbag. So anyway, we've got multiple letters here in the mailbag. Uh, excited to get into it. Uh, our first letter here, it, it, it's a bit of criticism from our audience. Uh, do you want to read this letter? Yeah, this one uh, comes from Brandon. No uh, no address. So just Brandon from, uh, I guess, the internet. Um, hey, Stephen and Ian. I've been a listener and follower for several years at this point. Uh, I receive your weekly emails. I listen to most episodes. I follow all your social media. So not every episode. You've introduced me to tons of new music, as well as reinforced my feelings on trends in music news, and of course, satisfied my nostalgia when thinking of indie music over the past several decades. I am writing you today to say that every time you switch to Sportscast, without fail, I will turn off the podcast. I have been a massively obsessed music fan my entire life and have never followed sports. Maybe you should do a separate sidecast to cover sports? Because I can only assume your core audience of music fans do not care about the NFL. Sorry to be running in with a complaint. I still listen to the episodes that don't turn into a sports podcast. Uh, I should probably delete this and not send it. Uh, that's Brandon. <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. Yeah, it's dark uh, Brandon, Brandon th- up in the fucking mailbag. Brandon, thank you for writing. Thank you for your support. Appreciate you listening and uh, reading and following the tweets and everything. I just got to say, Brandon, you don't have to stop listening <laughs> when Sportscast comes on. I don't know if you're aware, but like Sportscast traditionally lasts about five minutes. We go into Sportscast for a little bit, 
and then we get out. Maybe it'd be 10 minutes. Like when we were debating NFL versus college football, I think that went on for a while. I think that's the episode that inspired Brandon to finally write in and give us a piece of his mind. But I would just say, Brandon, if Sportscast comes up, just fast forward. We'll get back to music. You don't have to like stop the episode or throw your phone out the car window or or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're just going to go in for a little bit, man. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Just skip ahead. I hope that's not like an epidemic in our listenership. If they just for some reason think we're dropping IndieCast this week, we're only going to do SportsCast. No, SportsCast, it's a mini little thing in the middle of the episode. And uh, yeah, it's like the instrumental. I love it's it. Like the instrumental and some artists throw on the album sometimes, you know. A spoken word track, yeah. spoken word track, maybe of our episodes. Yeah, it's the little, uh, po- the little post rock ambient interlude. Yeah, so I mean, we're not going to stop. Though. No, <laughs> we're not going to stop sportscast because you got to have sportscast every now and then. I do think that there are people in our audience who like sportscast, who like the NFL. Uh. I feel like there's more intersection of sports and pop culture than ever, don't you? Well, I mean, I, I look, we are boldly existing at the intersection of sports and pop culture, which no podcast has done before or since. So, you know, there's going to be some audience members who are not brave enough to follow us into this bold new territory. But I think this idea that, um, you know, sports and music fans, there's like this wall between them is like very outdated. It's... Also, I mean, look, we live in an era where, like, theater kids and comic book nerds are more or less running, like, pop culture on, like, the highest level. And also, like, this jock sports sort of thing. I mean, I guarantee a lot of the bands that Brandon's gotten into through us have, like, multiple fantasy sports teams. One of my favorite one, one of my favorite little bits of interview uh, trivia is when I uh, interviewed 10 Tricks Point Never. This had to be back in 11 or 12. He would talk to me about, like, how... On one of his monitors on stage, he would have his like fantasy basketball stats up. Massive Celtics fan, that guy. I, I think that like most indie or just a lot of the stuff that we cover, patio music, college football rock, that stuff, people are into the NFL. If not like, you know, wearing a, you know, if not like wearing a Jordan Love jersey on stage, but like didn't like Bob Mastanovich wear like a, it's like a, like a Malcolm Brogdon Bucks jersey at the most recent pavement show. Th- yeah, Malkmus is a huge yeah. fantasy sports guy. And yeah, I mean, yeah, th- there's a big intersection. And since we're on this topic, because we were going to talk about this in the, in the banter segment, but can we talk about the Thursday night football theme song <laughs> yes. uh, that dropped this week? You got you got Chris Stapleton. You got Snoop Dogg. Who, like, does Snoop Dogg actually perform in the song? Because in the video I saw, Snoop, like, gets out of a car Wearing sunglasses, but I don't actually hear. I, I don't think he raps or anything. Is he like? Does he actually rap? I think in he the does. Song? Yeah, I think he, 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 he like okay. he provides some sort of like flavoring to it. So, and then you got Cindy Blackman, the great drummer. She's in there too. It's a cover of "In the Air Tonight" by Phil Collins. This is the new Thursday Night Football theme song. Was there a previous Thursday Night Football theme song? I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> with the with, with with the Carrie Underwood. Uh. uh I've waited all day for Sunday night 
to the tune of uh, that. What's that Joan Jett song? I hate myself for loving you. Right like it's to the tune of that. I've waited all day for Sunday night. Ba, 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 ba. And then she does like lyrics specific to the game. Yeah, which is great. I love that. You got Dak Prescott in. You know. Yeah, it, it, Daniel Jones. She's just Danny Dimes. Yeah, I, I love how like she might be just like us doing last minute like outline shit. It's like oh fuck, like Saquon Barkley's out with like a with an ACL injury. Like we we like what what the fuck am I gonna come up with about Matt Breda? Oh, by the way, we're fu- I'm like talking about like the nitty gritty of the New York Giants running back uh, depth chart. We're losing Brandon. I know. I I just love this like image of Underwood in a room with like a team of Nashville songwriters. <laughs> they, they got the Google Doc open and they're like, "Shit, kickoffs in ten minutes, yeah. man!" <laughs> you know, like look up ESPN.com. Like, what's the latest status updates on this game? We got to write some lyrics. Uh, I don't know if they're gonna do that for the Thursday night game. Probably you not. Know, Chris Chris Stapleton. They're playing on short rest on Thursday night. <laughs> I can't believe they didn't like her H.E.R. is not involved with it or unless like they're in an exclusive deal with just to do NBA songs like uh, well, you got to have one country singer. Yes. Country because you, know, you got Hank Williams Jr. Of course, back in the yeah, day. That's you got the, that is Underwood. the old like I'm sure Hank Williams Jr. has written entire concept albums about like the how Thursday night football is an affront to like American pride. Well, yeah, because I think he got booted. I'm, I'm sure because right? he because he, <laughs> he made some comments. He got, uh, you know, he was like the yawn winner of his day. Made some comments. <laughs> yeah, tired of being Johnny Be Good, and I want to be Johnny Reb. Hank Williams Jr. Man, he's some of those so- some of those songs. Man, there's like songs where he's like literally complaining about like the price of paper towels. <laughs> I've heard them all. There was like back in yeah. back in the LimeWire days, I would just like look up the Hank Williams Jr. songs with like the most ridiculous titles, um, yeah. and just like hear what he has to say, and it's like real. It was like Latter-day Sun Kill Moon, like, going on about, like, grocery stores and shit. I love it. You know, you don't hear enough paper towel songs these days. I mean, it, these these musicians, they're just out of touch with the working man. You know, we need some uh, paper towel songs. Um, let's get to our next letter here. Uh, I will read this one. It's uh, about a topic near and dear to my heart. This is from Mitch in Sydney, Australia. Another Australian. Yeah, we, they love us down there. Yeah, what's what's our Australian numbers? Yeah, get uh, Phil, if you're Phil, if you're listening, you got to get us the Australian numbers. Maybe we can do like a little tour of Australia. Yeah, and also get amazing. maybe in more into like rugby. That's like going to be our sport. We're going to cover the All Blacks. I know that's New Zealand, but yeah, we're yeah. whatever it takes to like somehow finagle like our, our Australian tour. That'd be amazing. Uh, hey, Stephen Ian, CDs. <laughs> that's the first sentence. Yeah, CDs. We're for them. Love it. <laughs> Yeah, you, you got my attention, Mitch. Back in the day, or in Steve's case, last week probably, and you're joking, but I actually did just get a bunch of CDs because I had a gift card for my birthday. Um, if the option was there, did you have a preference for a jewel case or a digipack, and why? Amazing question here. Jewel case versus digipack. Where do you land, Ian? Okay, so I, I, I just love this question because, I mean, we've talked on this show before about like how certain albums from you know the 90s or even the early 2000s are like cd albums like you cannot think of them in any other type of format um but now this question makes me realize there's actually subgroups of cd albums and that includes like digipacks 
like, do, do you want to explain to like people who have maybe never bought a CD what a Digipack is? Digipack is basically packaging that's made out of like paper yeah. or cardboard, and it is. Uh, it was introduced in the 90s because it was more environmentally friendly as opposed to the jewel cases made out of plastic, you know. And this is back in the day, so there's like, you know, what, millions if not billions of CDs in the yeah. world filling up landfills. Uh, so, yeah, so Digipack was kind of considered like the more sort of kinder, gentler alternative. Yeah. To the jewel case. And that's why, like, they kind of start, like, when I think about, like, di- specifically Digipack albums, like, these are the ones that come along, will come along, like, the late 90s. But, you know, when, I, like, Funeral, like, Arcade Fire's Funeral, Digipack album. The Fragile, the Nine Inch Nails double album, that's Digipack. But Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, that is definitely a jewel case, uh, see, that is definitely a jewel case album. Um, and the double jewel case, too, which is a beautiful case. thing. Yeah, I mean, look, it, jewel cases, it, I, I mean, I know they're, like, made out of plastic and they're, like, meant to be shipped all over the world, but, like, they have, like, the structural integrity of, like, Tiffany Crystal, <laughs> like, it, they would never fail to have, like, to have like just this the fat crack on the uh on the front of the cd which somehow like messed up my listening experience uh if i had like a crack on the cd it somehow made me think less of the music therein um but like when i think about like why i loved cds uh it's not necessarily about like the fidelity of the sound or anything like that but the ability to use them as interior decoration, I really miss having that um, wall of CDs be like the biggest, if not the only piece of furniture I had in many of my uh, living spaces in my 20s. And whereas jewel cases, I mean, vinyl can't even give you this. Um, like the jewel cases give you the spine, which clearly lists out the name and most likely the album title. So like you can kind of get a sense of like what this person has. Jewel cases, they fold up all funky. The spine has no, like, structure to it. And they just might, like, sink into the morass of thousands of CDs. So, uh, if I had to choose one, you know, specifically now, like, why I liked CDs so much, we got to go with the jewel case. Yeah, I'm, I'm a jewel case person, too, for the reasons that you were saying. When you, when you display your CDs, it's a uniform size, so they line up really well. Like you said, you can see the album title clearly on the spine, so as you're perusing your collection, you can find the album that you want much easier. There's a thing now with CDs where the modern digipack, they're trying to make it look like a mini vinyl essentially. So sometimes it's taller than a conventional uh, CD. And if you're putting that on your shelf, it just screws everything. Vitology like, like that. God, that one really fucked it up for real. Exactly. That d- just screws up your shelf. Cause if you're putting any CDs above that one, it's going to stick up in the row and it just creates chaos. I really like your concept of like the Digipack album. Versus the Jewel Case album. I, I, I love that we're getting this granular with the CD album. Now we're getting into subgenres of the CD album. I think there's also like Digipack bands and Jewel Case bands. Like, you, like, like Wilco, for instance. Uh, they were Digipack going back to being there. And they go to Jewel Cases sometimes. I think Summer Teeth is a Jewel Case. Yankee Hotel yeah. Foxtrot is a Jewel Case. Uh Sky Blue Sky, though, I believe is a Digipack. Yeah, I stopped buying CDs at that point, so yeah, I'm going to trust you on that one. 
Uh, that, actually, I think there might be a jewel case version and a digipack version. I need to check that. <laughs> uh, Cass McCombs, he's like all digipack, and it makes sense with his sensibility. He's more of like a he's a crunchy guy, a granola guy, so he'd be in the digipacks. I like the idea that U2 is mainly a jewel case band, but when they put on Octune Baby, that is a digipack. And it was almost like them saying, yes, we're reinventing ourselves in every possible <laughs> Wait, it way. Was? Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, originally it's a digipack, but if you bought the album, say, through Columbia House, I was about to say, like, because I have seen many, many, uh, of, like, you know, parents' house, like, that I'd go to in the 90s. They, I have seen with my own eyes Octung Baby as a jewel case. Never seen it as digipack. I, man, if, may God strike me down if I'm wrong, but I believe that the original packaging was a digipack, and then... You know, because jewel cases are cheaper, presumably, <laughs> as it got, you know, produced for like the Columbia House version, that would have been like a jewel case. And maybe jewel cases were produced like as the record was pressed mm. as time went along. But I'm almost sure we have, we'll have to, we're going to fact check this. We'll get back to you all next week. Yeah. I want to get this right. Pearl Jam was a long box band and a digipack band, which is like, they yeah. really run, run the gamut. Well, they began as a jewel case band, and then with uh, Vitology, they go into the Digipack era, continues through No Code and Yield, mm-hmm. and I think they remain a Digipack band from then on, from there on out. And again, I'm sure Eddie Vedder, <laughs> socially conscious rocker, he's like, "Hey, man, I don't want to fill the landfills right. with uh, with Yield <laughs> and uh, and 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 Benoral, You know, I'm going to put these in Digipack form. Yeah." Um, Ten is like ten is the ultimate long box album. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And then with verses, maybe the Digipack technology just wasn't they like they didn't quite have enough sway yet. They were like, well, ten was a big band. Let's see you do it again. And then verses, huge record. And then Eddie Vedder's like, hey man, Digipack time. Yeah, you can't stop me. I'm doing it. <laughs> ticket ma- taking on Ticketmaster and Longbox. Like this guy, man. Fighting all, fighting all the most important battles of 90s alt-rock. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so uh, there's an album out today from an artist called Yule. Uh, I, I've looked it up. That's how it's... Pre- she, she actually said, like, yeah, I pronounce it several different ways, but you could call it Yule. Uh, it's her new album, Soft Scars. Um, so they had an album come out in uh, 2022 that I, en- I enjoyed a few songs off it. Uh, it got some, you know, pretty significant critical acclaim. Uh, I liked it in a sort of uh, society has progressed beyond the need for Grimes sort of way. And if you read their interviews, even now, there's just like a lot of talk about like cyborgs and post-humanism, like stuff that is like, is you know pretty fascinating if you take away you know all the other uh stuff surrounding grimes um but you know that previous album was very very online music and this one i'm gonna you know take a pretty reductive but i think accurate take on it which is that it sounds like you know art angels eras grime doing siamese dream uh a lot of the lyrics are like really just like piercing and brutal about like body dysmorphia and like what it's like to be a human being in 2023 but the music itself has this kind of like cybernetic shoegaze sound that like i don't want to say reminds me of orgy 
but like kind of reminds me of that like post electronica rock era where uh it's it's kind of trashy in its own way but also like very uh beautiful and like soft and harsh and you know right up my alley so it's not that far away from like the olivia rodrigo album in the sense that like if you're our age you're going to find a lot of reference points from like the 90s and you know forward but and it's also you know maybe the lyrical content you won't relate to it as much if you're not like a young woman but um yeah this is the sort of album that like you could say like try this not that it's got a lot of edge to it um i like it a lot it's one of my favorite albums of uh more recent times all right. Well, I have not heard that album. It sounds cool. I'm going to check it out after I get done recording and recommending my album this week, which is called Crying, Laughing, Waving, Smiling. It's the new LP by a Philadelphia band called Slaughter Beach Dog. Uh, you may know the main person in this band, Jake Ewald, from his former band Modern Baseball. Uh, but if you know Modern Baseball and you don't know Slaughter Beach Dog, this is a much different band. Mm-hmm. Modern Baseball, of course, was an emo band. Slaughter Beach Dog is this hybrid of like roots rock and power pop, essentially Summer Teeth era Wilco, I think is the obvious comparison point to make with this band. And, you know, Jake has been working with this group for about 10 years now, uh, going back, I think it was originally a side project for Modern Baseball. Now it's his main thing. And this album feels like a breakthrough. You know, I've enjoyed things that he's done with this band in the past, but this is, I think, the best record he's done. And... It's the kind of album, again, you know, I talk about seasonal music a lot on this podcast, but I do think that this record, if you're looking for, okay, I want something here in the fall, something that's like a little melancholic, but also beautiful and melodic and with some crunch in the right places, that's what this record is. Again, it has that Summer Teeth Wilco feeling to it. Really good record. Again, it's called Crying, Laughing, Waving, Smiling. The band is called Slaughter Beach Dog. Really good record. And, you know, with the comparison to uh, Summer Teeth, I think we are establishing that Slaughter Beach Dog, definitely a digipack band. Oh, absolutely. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 